So I, I want to uh, first just uh, right off the top, who are you? What do you do? Um, share with us some of your background for the people who uh, don't know you and uh, for whom this is the first time uh, they are hearing you. Well, thank you, Bradley. Uh, really honored to be here and such an interesting time. So I'm going to have a bigger scope than I normally do because some things are going to change because of the circumstances that we're under. I think moving forward, a lot of timelines are shifting. So my name is Brian Romley. I talk to computers and they talk to me. I mean, it's the best way I can describe it. I started working um, with voice interfaces. I would say let's pick a date in late 1970s, early 1980s is when I started really realizing that this is going to be a future uh, computer interface or primary future computer interface in my view. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in uh, central New Jersey where Bell Laboratories, AT&T, and all the communications companies existed. So I got to see a very early version of this uh, vision the difficulty was the technology wasn't there to make this useful. The computer simply couldn't understand our intents and uh, our volitions when we're asking it questions. And we're right now at that point in time. And over the years, what I established was different inroads into lifting up this technology based upon the changes of the technology. (coughs) Excuse me, that's not a Kronikoff. Uh, the, um, the downside is every time the technology lifted, let's say uh, voice synthesis or voice recognition, um, you needed to sort of realign all the other things that took place in the, um, in the entire uh, technological stack. So what that means is, a lot of people's early uh, interface to voice systems were probably automated attendance on uh, on phone calls. And those were profoundly bad experiences for most people. And then uh, very apropos for today, some of the very early car interfaces were um, not very pleasant for a lot of people. They had very limited utility. And then up, uh, to the most recent epoch is we have sort of very crude examples of what could be done in uh, with Echo devices and Google devices and Apple uh, systems. Uh, notice I'm not using their wake words because I'm surrounded by quite a few right now. Uh, and, and, and so over this arc of time, decades, I've been doing the best I can to work in my garage lab to try to be a little bit ahead of what the technological adaption curve is going to be and, um, and try to be the, you know, the, the first test subject on this. So I've built a lot of this stuff in my garage lab and some of it is deeply tied to my uh, automobile. I mean, uh, I've always seen the car as one of the primary voice first devices that humans are going to be utilizing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. That was brilliantly covered uh, over these last two days at the uh, uh, Voice in the Car Summit. But um, I think we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. So that's how I got here. 
Yeah, well, we appreciate you, you uh, that background, and and you you consult with a lot of uh, venture capital groups. Uh, you work with a lot True. of companies. Uh, you you uh, you're well known, and uh, we refer to you as the uh, the voice first oracle around these parts. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and uh, everybody else just refers to you as uh, as smart. So um, honored. So so I want to ask you um, just. Uh, I guess I'll start with, we'll get into plenty of car stuff, but I want to, I want to ask you about something which fortunately has not been brought up uh, that many times uh, over the last day or so. And that is the coronavirus. So the sense is that um, the time we're in now with this coronavirus uh, stuff going on, this pandemic, um, you know, I want to get your thoughts on, um, there's, there's a sort of sense of what the intersection between the coronavirus and voice technology is, um, that it's, it's a strong intersection and that voice technology um, is benefiting greatly from uh, the need to have contactless uh, touching of buttons in elevators like Roy Baja Rob of High Auto spoke about, or uh, the need um, to be able to to speak to things uh, like in an Uber, like uh, was mentioned as well. Um, I, I would just like to hear your perspective on what the coronavirus has done to the uh, to either complement or set back the emergence of voice technology. Well, brilliant questions, uh, Bradley. You know, I. I'm a studier of history, and, and for a lot of my clients, my uh, utility, I think, in what I do for them is give them a little bit of a boost of what's above the horizon, you know, what's on the other side. And I utilize history and futurism and fuse those two things together. And I studied, midsummer, I started studying the 1918 19 uh, 19 uh, pandemic. And there was a reason for that. There was, um, there was a conference that was held, um, a virtual conference and sort of a simulation. It was held by a number of institutions in the medical field, Bill and Melinda Gates, uh, that predicted, and there's videos out there, I, I, I think it's called Plan 102, and, um, or Event 102. And when I saw that, you know, I'd always have understood that real pandemics, uh, not just epidemics, uh, and, uh, you know, look it up the definitions, but not enough time to cover that. Real pandemics are going to impact, uh, you know, every 100 years or so. It's been cyclical pretty much as far back as you can go in history. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I said, okay, these folks are very smart. They're planning for a pandemic. This is interesting. Um, when you look at the videos, try not to get goosebumps because there's a whole lot of things that are being said in videos from August and September uh, that are taking place right now. So I started studying the pandemic and I said, well, what was the impact of that event to technology as a, as a general subject? Well, the very first thing I noticed, and I had not noticed this before, and I, I've studied a lot of history books from the subject, is communication technology exploded post-pandemic uh, 1918. And these are two technologies. One was an older technology called the telephone, uh, 
<clears throat> and the other one was a newer technology called radio and, or broadcast radio. And what happened was the impact to people after this pandemic, there was no national news service. Uh, there was no broadcast radio that anybody was really using in 1918 or 1919. There were crystal radio sets and some hobbyists were broadcasting. In my latest Twitter feed, I put up a, a video showing the very first broadcast radio station, 8KX, uh, out of Pittsburgh area. And that was uh, in 1919. So what happened is humanity came out of a sort of closed setting uh, where communication was kind of local. And you really didn't need to know about national news kind of same today, but we are just junkies for it. But we didn't really need to know about national news unless it really had a material impact on our life in our local environment. And that's, of course, World War I. People were getting news from that in newspapers, <clears throat> presidential elections, and maybe some news from former homelands or generational homelands, what's going on in Europe or Africa or Asia or something of those nature of that nature. So the radio exploded. And so the, the, the telephone post-pandemic, and it wasn't an accident because people now wanted to connect in different ways and more meaningful ways. And so there's a psychological repercussion to everything that's going, going on right now and everything that has gone on in the past. You can see cause and effect. And the other thing, and this is where we get to voice and touchless surfaces, the other thing is people started to become hyper aware of surfaces, public environments, and the potential of getting ill. Now, the reality of the situation is they were wearing gauze masks. If you, if you, I put up some newspaper clippings from that era. I, I have a microfiche microfilm reader, and fortunately, I have thousands of these microfiche of newspapers that have I've never made it to the internet. Uh, you know, nobody's digitalized them, so I put up some of these clippings, advertisements of buying gauze masks from the Red Red Cross. Now, in reality, the gauze mask is so porous it wasn't capable of stopping any virus likely that's true with other forms of uh, uh, protection. It also wasn't really uh, capable of stopping the spread of the virus from a, an infected person. Uh, in fact, it became more of a magnet to the virus because, you know, it was a warm, uh, uh, moist surface for something to attract to. But they didn't know it in that epoch. In that epoch, they felt that that worked. <clears throat> but what they did know is copper and cinnamon worked. Uh, copper workers didn't get sick. Not a single copper worker in the mines developed uh, the Spanish flu. And the same is true for uh, folks, mostly women who are working in the cinnamon production areas, uh, cinnamon uh, spice factories. And so there was anecdotal information that came up through that, uh, that world. And here's where it came to surfaces. <clears throat> there was always an understanding that copper had an antimicrobial sort of interaction. It's now known as contact kill. And they started to enforce local zoning requirements of public places had contact points that were made of some form of copper. And again, it, it looks also quaint to us right now, but it turns out that if we had more copper surfaces today, we'd have less spread, period, because it, it continues to work. That technology continues to work. 
without anybody doing anything. You don't need antimicrobials. You don't need people wiping it down. Yes, it will get tarnished. And yes, the uh, bio uh, kill capability is slightly lower, but it also reinvigorates itself when it's outside with weather. So it, it continues to work. In today's modern context, you can spray a micron onto hospital beds, hospital touch surfaces, public surfaces, and you would solve some of these problems. Now, that long kind of sub-routine uh, moves to here. I believe that we're going to see a similar type of action taking place with the design of public spaces and interfaces that people have in these public spaces. We're going to see um, either a directive or a consciousness of, I don't want to touch something. And whether that's real or imaginary, right? Because the pandemic of 1918, nobody's worrying about catching that anymore. None of us developed immunity to it. The version of that particular virus mutated to a version that just made you sick for a little bit and it just fades away. And just about all of us have gotten it and didn't know and didn't care. And likely that's going to be the case with this if it is a traditional virus. If it's not a traditional virus and there's other things going on, that's a different story. Um, yeah, so now we're looking at the public space. How does an elevator change? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that elevators, especially in cities, if you you know go to city areas, elevators have incredible uses, incredible possibilities of uh, spreading uh, germs. There's a, a number of different ways that we can change these surfaces. One is a holographic switch where you're just kind of touching into the air at, at a particular location. But I think more likely we're going to be using voice interfaces. And these are going to be very specific non-cloud-based voice interfaces that can just about understand almost any language and any type of accent. And also uh, understand people who don't have the ability to speak. And there's ways we can discuss how to do that, but I don't want to go too much further off the line where I've gone. Um, and I, I absolutely am, am certain that we're going to see entry points into buildings using the same types of technologies, thousands of uh, highly secured areas, homes, apartment complexes require people to enter passwords. And we're now going to be using a different type of technology, identifying that individual, not using you know, out in the public can hear passwords, but other technologies so that person can enter a building without touching anything, using their voice, or obviously people are going to be using devices and using their own screen to communicate. Now, that's another subsection of all this. A lot of folks are thinking in terms of the actual interface is going to be built in, say, to the elevator. What one could do is sort of make a car play for public spaces, now, how does this work? Well, it's bring your own device. And so you could talk to Siri and say, Siri, get me onto floor eight. And Siri takes that information from your device, your touch surface, and relays that information into the elevator, and the elevator now goes up. Now, obviously, some of this infrastructure is going to be, need, is going to be needed to be built. It is not difficult. It is not hard. And it is an easy retrofit. It's essentially a Bluetooth retrofit with an agreement about security. The security would be uh, know who that person is and know that they cannot maliciously do something to the elevator that they couldn't have done by pressing a button. So those of us who've, you know, maybe pressed every single button on a 50-floor elevator, 
<laughs> we might not have that uh, ability to do that under voice anymore. Um, and it, it, obviously, this trans, translates into automobile. It translates in, into uh, food ordering environments. Uh, Post-2020 uh, pandemic, you're going to see a whole lot of voice-based uh, food ordering in, in quick service food and possibly in certain types of restaurants. Uh, I have no doubt that we're not going to return to some of our uh, systems that we have come used to, but I have no doubt that we're going to return to some of the systems that we have been used to. Like, we will continue to go out to eat. We will continue to probably frequent fast food, uh, quick service type of environments. But I believe when they uh, re-matriculate back into society, they're going to look a lot different. Now, there was already a trend in quick service to have these large touchscreens. That is going to be a difficult thing to maintain, uh, especially it, even if every single person feels that they're immune to this, whether they believe that some injection is going to fix it or whatever. If some, somehow they believe they're now immune, you cannot erase the psychological impact that it's had on this generation. And that's a reality of studying history. Uh, we have to accept the fact that uh, people on, under lockdown have already, it takes 21 days to, to essentially adjust your way of thinking. And if it's kind of forced on you, it doesn't, it's somewhat indelible because we go back to our lives after, but we remember that indelible mark. And I'm most concerned for children who are growing up in this and maybe seeing parents who are freaked out and maybe going to the Costco lines that did not need to happen. Uh, that's my only, hopefully my only political stance I'll make today. So those Costco lines are ridiculous. They did not need to happen. And they were Is that encouraged. a political stance? Yeah, it's a political stance. <laughs> it's a political stance because it created a, a, a I call it fear porn. And, and that's uh, as, as randy as I'm going to get today. Okay. It, it's part of the fear porn that we're being injected into. And I'm not in in this conference to have you try to figure out why, who, where, and when. But understand that there was no reason for people to wait six hours in line to buy toilet paper. There was no reason for that. And before we cast judgment of, quote-unquote, stupidity of the, the masses, Take a step back and understand that those people are scared and they're reacting to a program. And that program was based upon what they were fed and what they were fed was a reality. And the reality is based upon the inputs that they take in, right? So your mind can only take in so many inputs. And if you take in certain inputs, you find it, you say, oh, there's a crisis. Oh, people are buying toilet paper. And, And some people in a crisis are not, thinking rationally because they're not giving themselves credit enough to understand that they do have the ability to survive and they have the ability to think rationally. They look to, they defer the decision to somebody else. So they see a a line form and they see other people buying things and, and they start doing that. And pretty much everybody has an investment to encourage that behavior. And it, it, when we come back and forensically analyze this period in time, after we get over laughing, uh, we're probably going to be heartbroken over what it caused in, in people's mindset. So I, I'm, I'm somewhat 
I don't want to add into the fear of this. That's why I'm great creating this great preamble that's non-voice is, yes, we're going to dramatically change how we interface with our world. And yes, it makes a lot of sense in my thesis we've talked about for a long time on your shows and at the conferences, but it, it, it doesn't have to be done on a level of fear. Uh, I, I don't well, believe humans should be operating on levels of fear. Sure. Well, we, we're, we're aligned on that. And so that, that uh, let, me, let me dive a little bit further in on that. So, you know, with, with the coronavirus and everything going on, I, I think you're right. Like it's, uh, you know, obviously with anything, it's instructive to look back at history and see what's happened and, and keying in on the Spanish flu, I think is as good as anything because that was just the most recent thing. There's going to be some things that last and there's going to be some aspects of this that don't last. And, you know, whoever can, whoever's smart enough to figure out which one's which uh, before it actually takes place, uh, you know, you can, uh, you can benefit from that uh, or, or just, you know, feel good about yourself either way. You know, one of the things that uh, I touched on yesterday when I was sort of flip-flopping the program around is uh, events. And so, you know, I want to touch on it here before you get out of this preamble. We, we start to talk more, you know, strictly about voice. Sure. Um, you know, I want to, um, you know, we all uh, go to events or we all went to events. Maybe I should yeah. say that. Uh, we all went to events, <laughs> uh, large, small. Um, we went to events for a lot of different reasons, personal, business, and, um you know, I, I feel for, you know, people whose weddings were impacted uh, by this um, and they had to, you know, you've seen all sorts of um, makeshift solutions very much. This is this right here. You're in a makeshift yeah. solution. Yeah. Uh, you're 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 in, in one uh, right the second. So, um, you know, I'm curious as to your thoughts on, you know, we put out what we call the Project Voice Series Protocols. Uh, we're going to resume having events starting in August uh, that are on the smaller scale, uh, that are strictly uh, have numerous rules to them uh, that events didn't have before, numerous safeguards to them uh, that reflect a lot of things, uh, not the least of which is that you can't insure an event anymore. Um, you know, that that market doesn't exist. Yeah. And so, you know, that's why half of events are gone in the blink of an eye. And the other half are, are going to be self-insuring. And, uh, you know, the, the thought that I have is for mega events, which is just my word for events of 10,000 people or more. So you got CES, you got South by Southwest, uh, something that I went to last year, the London Book Fair, uh, game developer conference on the gaming in the gaming industry. Every industry's got these mega shows. Um, my sentiment is that those things can't come back for a while. And even with, if there is a vaccine, they're still going to have trouble coming back. What, what are your thoughts on, on that end of the event spectrum and just events in general? Uh, I'd love to hear it before we uh, march on with talking about uh, more voice pertinent topics. Bradley, great insights. And uh, I really applaud you for the leadership you're taking, not only in this event, but your, your future physical events. I, I think it's, it's bold. And I think when we look back on it, uh, you, you will be a pioneer. As far as your thesis about uh, mega events, um, absolutely 
100% certain we've seen the peak that we've ever seen before. Uh, they will not return to the level they, they did. And there's good reasons for it. Some events became so cumbersome, so large, that it was impossible to see all the, the, the vendors uh, attend all of the, the speakers uh, without spending a week at an event. And, and people just don't have that time. And um, so that's problem number one. The events became bloated. They became ineffectual. And unfortunately, they became, see how I can say this, they became the, the embodiment of a press release. A lot of the, the, the shows just were just a monolithic sort of press release. What I love about your events, Bradley, is they're dynamic and the speakers are giving some of the most latest information because we're in a dynamic industry. This voice industry is changing very, very quickly. And there's new, new interest and, and, and new ideas coming into it at all times. Some of the industries that move a little slower, even technology industries that people think are cutting edge, you sit in some of the conferences and it is literally just something that came off the, the, the press release section of the company. And, and so what happens is it dilutes the power of what a physical event could be. So I believe that we're going to see a lot more localized and a lot more siloed type of events, very similar to what you're doing, is we're going to see events work around a, a group of interests and not these mega events across a multitude of interests. That serves pretty much almost no one because they're not as profitable as they seem to the event holder. They're not as profitable for the people who display at the event and not as much business was getting done. I mean, my first event that I attended was the Atlantic City Computer Festival, and I met Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. I was a kid. I mean, they were just two guys, you know. Uh, and uh, my bigger events was Comdex as they grew from, you know, basically, I guess, was it the Sands? No, it was uh, Las Vegas Convention Center was, you know, one, one section till it, it spilled over into the entire uh, Las Vegas uh, hotel industry, you know, and it got to the point where there was so much, and this was towards, um, you know, late nineties got to be so much that uh, I think even Sheldon Adelson said, you know, it, it's almost pointless to hold this event and it more or less disintegrated after that. Uh, you know, now we have the consumer electronics show uh, that used to be an industry show. Now it's just, it became a consumer show. NAM is the same way. NAM used to be uh, uh, National Music Dealers Association. Now it's, you know, kids that want to kind of hang out and look at, at stuff. So they became transactional shows and not informational shows. And I see a reason for that, but I believe that we're going to go back to informational shows and not transactional shows. And, 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 and that'll take some of the volume out of it and I think we'll see an increase in attendance. Um, regardless, listen, here's the reality. The reality is you will never, ever, ever, ever stop a pandemic, period. Pandemics will come and they will go. And whatever you are immune to today will mutate and become something else tomorrow. 
I, I'm sorry if I'm the person bringing that. And I don't know why we don't hear that. And it's not part of fear porn. It's part of life. So we will get back to life. We will get over this and we'll start regrouping in these organized things that we call events. And I think they're going to become much more meaningful. I think the fluff will be taken out of them. And I think we'll have people speaking more about what they're really working on and the information that really needs to get out there rather than, oh, they invited us to an event. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk to marketing to see what we can throw together. And I'm sure, Bradley, you've experienced that in the past, right? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's been funny to see the changes already. I mean, it's, um, I think one thing we've seen in a number of industries is it's almost like, uh, and I could see someone writing a book about this, uh, it, it, the changes that we have seen in industries, in a number of industries, I could name several, uh, that were implemented in the wake of the coronavirus were things that should have happened anyway. Yes. Here's an example. Here's Absolutely. An example. Yeah, uh, my wife got an email from um, uh, our insurance company saying that uh, they're giving us 15% back because we're not on the road. Yeah. I don't know where on earth that came from or yeah, or what precipitated that, but that's the type of thing that an insurance company probably should have been doing all along. Thank you. uh, You know, I guess to COVID-19 for causing that, that sector to uh, uh, start having a more human centric uh, approach. Um, Cell phone companies, Verizon, um, T-Mobile, giving people extra bandwidth, um, to uh to for their cell phone usage for their internet uh without prompting no prompting yeah. it's like people talk on twitter it's like when you say you know no one says something uh, no one absolutely no one and then there, there's some sort of thing at the bottom it's like no one said anything <laughs> <laughs> and uh and here here is uh verizon saying it. here's your extra gig of, of usage how beautiful is that why did it take a pandemic for some genius to figure out that that's a good thing to do. Um, you know, I could, I could go on and on and on. I, I, I name a company, whatever, uh, you know, delivery. Every industry. Every yeah, industry. restaurant delivery. Uh, you know, all these different things. Uh, and, um, you know, I think uh, that's a book I would love to read is, is somebody um, who has documented uh, pre-coronavirus, post-coronavirus, and, um, and, and the changes and how it, it wasn't the disease. It was, it was it really, it was just, it accelerated mindset. the trend. It yeah, it, it, it accelerated time uh, and, and got us to this new place. And, and industry events are no different. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, Brian, it sounded like you were going to say something there. You still here? Yeah, I, I, we got okay. locked up there. Uh, I, I, I kind of lost you for a second, but it's interesting you brought that up. I am actually working with a couple of authors and maybe even do it myself too now uh, about looking at pre and post uh, pandemic and uh, 2020 pandemic. And why, why does, you know, if we look at history, every time there has been massive accelerations in technologies and actually human understanding 
Uh, it's been crises, and most of them have been world wars in modern times, or, or any war, but the world wars. And so we can really kind of brainstorm around what happened post-World War II. Uh, we're going to have similar things because, in a sense, this is in, in 1918, 1957, it was another pandemic, and I, I, there are other minor ones. And we can kind of look back at those things. And, but what happens is there's an explosion of creativity. And we're going to, one of my pet peeves, and I think I've talked to you about this before, was you have tech companies making everybody live in the most expensive real estate in the entire world, almost, other than maybe Monaco, and dedicating most of this income for these tech workers to maintain, you know, a, let's say a thousand square foot home for their family, when they could have been leading with, with people to do remote work. In my analysis, about 70% of jobs do not require you to check in and, and get in on, to get in a car, and this is a car summit, and we'll talk about how, auto, how transportation is going to change. You get in a car, travel to work, go into that building, you know, do all the things you need, and then do what? It turns out you're really very productive. You're only going to get in that. It's not eight hours. People say they work eight-hour days. It's 12 hours when you, com- when you uh, factor in commuting and all the other things necessary to get ready for work. So you got 12 hours, whereas I'm sure you just rolled, you know, me, I just rolled out of bed, came, got a shower, came down, and, and, uh, and I'm at work. And so let's look at that burst in productivity. Now, if you are an inner self-managed person, let's say, let's call it discipline, or you find a way to get discipline and you find a way to stay away from the refrigerator and all these other things, imagine the explosion in creativity and productivity. And here's, a, here's the aspect of that. So when you go into work, the average tech worker in that 12-hour cycle is working. How long do you think they're actually working? Take a guess. You tell me. <laughs> About two hours. So 10 hours to get two hours of work done. And this is with headphones on, blasting, I don't know what kind of music, and not interacting with their peers because guess what? We're going to make everybody come down to, to come down to downtown San Francisco because it looks really cool and we have exposed brick and we have recycled wood and everybody sits at a great table like they did in university, Right. And we're all going to do that because it's creative and we're all going to have chance conversations to do something synergistically. That is a false premise. When I walk into these startups and I walk into uh, legacy companies who are trying to act and emulate startups, I ask them, have you done any studies about the fact that you are lowering productivity by doing this? That programmer whose back is to the wall or, or, or his back is to the entrance. Do you know that I can just do five things to him right now on the resituating him and I can increase his productivity by about 30% guaranteed? That's not possible. I go, yes, it is possible because you're not studying the environment. So the environment that people work under must be conducive to creativity. The current industrial revolution because the only reason we coagulated in these buildings in big cities was because that's where the means of production was. There was a machine that somebody had to press a button on. There was a pile of paper that somebody had to move from A to B. There was a typewriter keyboard that somebody had to type on to make a copy 
of a letter that went into an envelope. Those people don't need to be there. Do they need to always work at home? Perhaps not, but get, get this. If you didn't have to commute, if you could stay wherever you were and your company that you're working for would recognize that, you talk about unintended consequences, and they said, listen, I'm going to pay you to get, live in a bigger home so that you have an adequate workspace. I'm going to pay you to have a, a secured internet connection through our virtual private network. Uh, I'm going to pay you to be more productive. You know, what a lot of companies, and I've said this forever, I go, let, let the programmers, let the uh, telemarketers, people on the phone, let them work wherever they want, whenever they want to get the work done if it's appropriate. You know, people answer the phone after certain hours, but programmers, I don't work any time of day or night, anywhere. Um, you'll see an increase in productivity. And that's what we're seeing right now, Bradley. We're seeing people increase productivity. And voice is enhancing this because the use of voice uh, assistance in this particular moment in time is skyrocketing. I can't talk about private numbers that were shared to me, but because people are in their home environment, they're utilizing these technologies to a level they've never done before. They're asking questions. Yeah, let's go there. So yeah. let's talk about where we are right now. So at the point at which uh, you and I had our first conversation, uh, we're going to take this interview and, and make it into the uh, season finale of Voice First Roundtable. Oh, thank that's, you. Where, that, that's where you and I um, had our first conversation as episode one of the Voice First Roundtable. So, um, you know, we've seen, um, you know, we started off, this conference with updates from Google uh, as well as Amazon and, uh, and also sound sound town, lest we leave them out. And, yeah. you know, I would love to uh, get your thoughts on where we are in this snapshot in time. My perception is that uh, as opposed to in the past, uh, you know, two, three years ago where it was Alexa, this Alexa, that um, Alexa taking up all of the oxygen um, in terms of the mainstream sort of consciousness of voice assistants. Now where we're at is that Alexa still has a very strong position, but Google Assistant has moved up into, you know, what I would call a solid 1A slash, you know, right there at number two, you know, in that all the data I've seen, as well as some we've actually put together, shows that Google Assistant is superior to uh, a lot of, in a lot of uh, areas, a lot of domains, a lot of queries, types of things to Alexa. And in fact, it's, it's, a, it's superior to everybody. Um, and, uh, and so consequently, Google Assistant's carved out a path for itself. Um, you know, Cortana has sort of filled, set, set into this enterprise role. We're seeing the rise of a lot of independence for a lot of different reasons, groups like a Soundtown, Bixby's uh, emergence last year, was a big deal uh, as Samsung prepares to do some interesting things. The interview we had with Adam Shire just went live yesterday. Paint us a picture. Where are we right now with voice assistance? And, you know, whether it's where you would hope we would be or whether it's behind where you would hope we would be, where, where do we sit right this moment? Wow. So, Bradley, in our first roundtable, God, that feels like decades ago now because things have moved in so many directions. Um, if the, if this particular 
event did not insert itself in this moment, um, I would say we're very behind from where I would have liked to have seen this technology evolve to. Unfortunately, this particular event is probably going to delay some of the things that should be happening uh, this year and maybe even next year. So, and when, you, so when you say event, you mean coronavirus? Yes, not your okay. event, uh, <laughs> pandemic 2020. So, so what, what have we gotten to so far since 2014? Let's call that the, the and, and I can go back to Adam and, and Siri, and of course, the, the, they were the pioneers, but they didn't make a voice first device. You know, it wasn't primarily founded on this, uh, this mindset. And up, up until this moment, there's only one company that truly is doing that, and that's Amazon. And, and, and we must take a moment and take a step back on that particular philosophy and the philosophies that Jeff Bezos has, has had over his arc of career. What does he know that all of the other companies don't know? And it has to do with classic uh, Clayton Christensen disruption. When your business is to make a device and the primary user interface to that device is a surface that people use their thumbs on, it's very hard for you to imagine a world where people are going to do that less. So the people who advise these companies and establish the future, um, their paycheck is uh, predicated upon their ability to reinforce the future of us thumb clawing at glass screens into the next thousand years. So what I do with these companies when I'm asked is I try to uh, ask them, what do you think is going to happen? Do you believe that the next thousand years, I'll pick, I pick thousand years as as a far enough away date where you would have to, any thinking person would have to say, of course not. We're not going to be thumb clawing at glass screens a thousand years from now. Okay, good. Now let's work our way backwards. What technology do you think we're going to use? Well, we'll stick a probe in somebody's head. Oh, interesting. What are they going to listen for in this probe? What are they sensing? Well, I, your thoughts. Well, your thoughts are words. The only thing that any probe could ever listen to is not the random thoughts of your right hemisphere, but the coherent thoughts of your left hemisphere that is part of the phonological loop called Broca and Wernicke's area. And that is your silent inner narrative monologue voice. So it's going to be a voice, right? Ah, okay. So now let's go closer and closer to reality where we are today. So if in fact the primary interface is going to be voice at some point in time, why don't we just start doing that right now? And Jeff Bezos is in that direction of saying, you know, I'm already doing it. Apple and Google, as good as they are, and, and Samsung, as good as they are, are still looking at it as an as, as a, uh, interface to their device. And what, what Clayton Christensen said in his true disruption um, thesis is that the disrupted legacy, or let's call them dinosaur companies, because that's what they are at this point, um, they will do anything to consider this upstart technology, this annoying little bug in the room. They'll do anything then to give it a spotlight and to allow it to transition up, because to them, 
they would have to slaughter the milk, uh, the milk cow, if you will. And they don't want to do that. And that's the analogy that some of these companies do. They literally think that they're taking the milk cow out of the equation. I don't say that at all. I say that there are ways that you can honor both by Apple's case, Siri OS, and Google's case, wake up and stop thinking that everybody's a commodity to be sold to. Understand that you can actually build a different concept of Google if you really understand what voice uh, interfaces are and a true assistant is. And the same goes to true uh, with Samsung. So what we're doing today is we have much better technology than we did uh, when we first started talking uh, on the Voice First Roundtable show one. The technology recognizes voices much more uh, efficiently uh, and the subject capability the domains uh, that these systems can now reach out to are literally unlimited. When I think we first talked, there were maybe 70 uh, skills, maybe 100. Uh, now, let's call it 100,000 uh, across a, a number of different. So there's been an explosion. But the, the same problems hold true that I said so many years ago that without discovery and monetization, that the, this version of the voice first revolution will subside and another version will take over. And that version is the true assistant, not the assistant that's kind of slapped together for a specific purpose. Uh, the assistant that follows you the rest of your life. I call it the intelligent amplifier, the intelligence amplifier. And, and the premise of this is very, very simple. And that is, it knows everything about you. It's hyper-local and hyper-private. It's not designed to sell your private data to an advertiser. That doesn't mean you can't make money as a company. There's going to be billion-dollar companies, trillion-dollar companies built around it. It just means the entire world inverts and we can now finally see that under this crisis, that things can change dramatically. So what is, a, what is a, the system today that leads to that? We're seeing the beginnings of that. Every one of the presenters uh, at this event are brilliant in, in the way they're moving the ball up the hill. Uh, the car is a domain that people are going to be spending still a lot of time in. And you know, I made this claim back in the 90s, and I said there will be a point in time where you would understand a car brand more by their voice persona than their car design. And I think that still holds true more today than it ever has. Because as we saw with the last pre uh, presenter, uh, you can really uh, hyper-personalize the experience to the user. And, and, and what that means is I use, I'll call it Myers-Briggs and Jungian archetypes to understand, and you brought this question up and it was brilliant, Bradley. What if you're not in a mood to have a very verbose conversation with your automobile? It's like, stop giving me all of the baggage. I just want to turn on the air conditioning or I just want to do all that. You have to sense this in real time. And None of the major uh, voice platforms have even begun to research this, let alone build the protocols necessary. And I'm doing it in my garage lab for five years. You, I 
I think I'd given a test of it, one of the shows here, uh, where it can know that I'm in, I'm not in such a good mood today. So therefore, don't give me extra bit of information. Uh, the verb, I call it ver- verbosity of the conversation. It shortens down. So there's there's situational Jungian or uh, or Myers Briggs that you're under meaning you're in a bad mood, you don't feel good, or you're in a rush. And then there is the larger arc of who you are generally. You know these people. There's some people are, just give me the facts. Okay, I'm done with you. And there are other people like, hey, dive into that. I want to hear, all, I want, go to three hours worth of history on this. And there are people in the middle. If your voice assistant knows this, and there are easy, way, easy ways to do this, it doesn't require... Artificial general intelligence. It doesn't require some new invention. Google, Apple, and Amazon have all the technologies that can do this tomorrow. Uh, it just takes the will and the understanding to do it. You can start adjusting these experiences to be more pleasant because they morph in a bespoke, tailored way to who you are in that moment. And then now their utility increases and skyrockets because the experience becomes more and more pleasant. The biggest thing, and this is, I'm backing into where some of the good and bad is. The good is the utility of these systems are phenomenal. You can literally ask the Google Assistant almost anything and we'll do a good job in getting it back. Uh, Amazon's getting pretty darn close too. Siri's got a long way to go. Uh, Cortana, they've, nobody's home. They left the building. I don't know what happened there. Um, uh, Bixby is growing, but there are limitations within the way uh, the way that I believe Bixby is being promoted. Uh, I love Adam and uh, and Dag when he was there, and and and, and that entire team. They're brilliant, uh, but they're a victim of a company that's not promoting that platform correctly. And I, I'm going to say that because I don't I need to answer to a boss, and you know that's just the way it is. They're they're destroying what could be an incredible product by not promoting it correctly. And I'm not saying it's going to end. I'm just saying that they're not promoting the product correctly. And I'm saying the same thing about Apple Um, and somewhat to Google. Uh, I'm not saying that about Amazon. They are promoting it correctly. So to back into this is we have this incredible potential capability, but there's what I call the fence line problem that I've always warned any of these companies that were willing to talk to me, I've always warned them about the fence line problem. And that is when the consumer first tries the system and they find where the fence line is, they tend not to go back to that fence line, meaning I don't know the answer to that question, right? If you've ever asked a voice assistant and it can't answer the question, you've now created a fence line. And I begged companies not to ever create that response. The I don't know the answer to that is a lack of creativity, a lack of understanding of history, a lack of human psychology, a lack of user interface design uh, protocols. You never give that sort of error. I can give you about 50 errors that you can give, but that's not one of them because now you've established psychologically the limits of that capability. So here lies the problem, Bradley. As we expand the utility and capability of these systems, how does the user know that that expansion took place? How does it know it now can answer that question? When you've already trained that person, it couldn't. 
now we can uh, we can argue that okay now we've learned the lesson but the thing is even if i i've said this for years now even i said it now and if everybody at all the companies i'm talking to say oh i just got a free idea from brian we go and implement fine go ahead and do it but first off you need to really understand why that is happening and what i mean why this is happening is amazon's opened up uh, what it was called Alexa answers for human humans to uh, actually answer questions that uh, Alexa couldn't answer. And I wrote a report. I urge anybody to, if they're not bored with me now, they get really bored with me if they read my Quora on Alexa answers. Uh, it is a deep dive in the psychology of what people are asking Alexa. I mean, literally Amazon's opened up what people are using these systems for why uh, they're asking those things, I draw some conclusions, and how the failures of the current technology is, uh, is limiting that particular platform. And, uh, and I analyze hundreds of questions. I still do. Uh, I, this is a study that has not stopped. I've answered, to be honest with you, uh, my intelligence amplifier has answered about maybe 9,000 questions that Alexa couldn't answer. So I used to just kind of do it myself. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to walk my walk. So I'm just going to pump those questions into the intelligence amplifier and then let it pop out the answers to that question. And, she, and, and it's sort of a proof case of the limitations of the current technologies. Um, so where we stand today is use of these systems have exploded. Beyond, that, beyond the level that anybody has captured in any chart or diagram, I can tell you that from my own studies. Um, I hope to put out very accurate insights on how it's exploded. Uh, using a, a new system I've designed where we're not asking people, are you using things more? I'm actually getting insights that they are. Uh, and, and we'll talk about that hopefully at a future show. Um, the sales of these devices have skyrocketed during uh, pandemic 2020. They have not gone down. They've taken off. It's one of the few technology d devices that continue to increase. And that's an interesting insight. And some of it has to do with uh, the lockdown that people are under. And there's other things that are taking place. I believe that people are getting more curious. And this is another artifact, uh, a, a more creative, uh, more bored there are less distractions, uh, Bradley. Uh, there's no sports on, really. Um, uh, in case you, maybe marble racing, I don't know. There's some sports. Uh, people are. Is that a sport? Uh, I guess it is now. Uh, <laughs> or people uh, adding commentary to a game that took place uh, 19 years ago and making it like it's live. There's a lot of different things people. But what is happening is people are de dealing themselves more free time. And in that free time, I'm actually seeing a renaissance of people wanting to learn. And that is also expanding the use of voice devices. There's a lot of people just going crazy asking questions. And then there's another artifact, and that's uh, Facebook Portal uh, and, and multimodal devices as ways for people to stay connected, primarily initially with elderly, right? I think uh, Facebook just donated... I think a hundred thousand to uh, nursing homes, so that um, people who are locked in nursing homes can actually interact via a Facebook um, uh, chat uh, with their uh, family, and I think that's 
that's another reason we're seeing the expansion, that multi-molded part. Remember, it's not voice only, it's voice first. And uh, the portal, for all of its problems and misgivings, is uh, the use and utility of that particular system is skyrocketing. And so is uh, Amazon video-based devices. So, uh, so we're seeing a lot of changes there. So I'm getting some questions in the chat about wanting to see some links like uh, to the Quora, to some data that you were talking about, Brian. Um, and I just made a general statement in the chat that uh, I'll, I'll work with you to get a couple of links of things that you Beautiful. are comfortable with, yeah, with comfortable sharing. And, and uh, what I'll probably do is just uh, send that out uh, through the Eventbrite uh, mechanism so that everybody who's registered will get that. Uh, I'll, we'll find a way to communicate that. It, we might send it when we send the, uh, the audio and video of all the presentations as well. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, super interesting, Brian. And, uh, yeah, yeah, it's funny you talk about sports. Uh, I was, uh, working on, um, I was just doing some work on the computer, responding to an email or something, and I hear my son, who's who's eight years old, who was actually on the, <laughs> on uh, made a Zoom cameo uh, yesterday when I was talking to uh, to my brother, you know, his uncle, and um, I just heard him scream uh, the other day, "Lakers win the championship." <laughs> i'm like what <laughs> i love it yeah and it was some game you know from a few years ago or something i'm like oh, I, I don't know if that was like good or bad i didn't really have an opinion on that but i just thought it was funny uh you know and um i don't want you know not to delve back into events again but i think sports are going to have a so you talk about needing to be creative, uh, you know, for people who say, I don't, you know, a voice assistant saying, I don't know is the answer to a question and that being uncreative, uh, you know, s- sports events are going to have to be real creative with how they bring people back, uh, you know, over the next couple of months. Uh, I, I, I don't envy that position. Yeah, I think but, it might be years. It might be years, unfortunately. And some of the sporting uh, environments, just because of the way they've been organized, well, I think they'll bring them back, but I think I think they'll bring them back. The question is just going to be who's going to be in the stands. Uh, nobody in the stands, a fraction of people in the stands. Who's going to be in the stands? I think that's that's uh, the question. Uh, and uh, yeah, Brian, thank you for putting that in the chat there. So yeah, that's that's my uh, my long piece. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. So. Um, so I want to ask you and you started to delve into it, um, you know, when we had that first chat, uh, episode one of Voice First Roundtable a couple years ago. Um, multimodal wasn't a thing. So I want to spend a yeah. minute talking about multimodal um, voice implementations, apps, everything. So, you know, we have lived through just in the last 18 to 24 months, um, Amazon uh, deciding that and i don't i don't think it was something that they ever intended to do annually it's just turned into something that they're doing annually this this dog and pony show that they do i think every november mars um i don't know if it's in march that was in november october november oh, no, the, late the, in the year where they the show Mar- off all the, the new hardware the mars the mars event oh yeah well they do that too and and that was obviously canceled for this year yeah. but no I, what i'm referring to is when they do this it, it's it's only oh the product the announcement yeah that's right yeah yeah, yeah. and the and the first one they at the first one they ever did they announced a few things it was like this whole smorgasbord but one of the things they announced was the echo show yes and they showed that uh the echo buttons were part of that 
Um, I think the Echo Look was part of the, that, um, which was, which was like private for a while. You could only get it invitation only. But uh, they announced all that at one time, and I love what they have done in sort of iterating on hardware and just sort of throwing it out there and seeing what happens. Because here's what happened with the Echo Show. And VoiceBot has done a great job reporting on this um, and, and really uh, figuring this out, you know, because they, they had a report uh, that they put out that was showing what um, rooms in the house uh, get the yeah. most usage. And what we have discovered, and this has been the true in my house from day one, is that the Echo Show and its corollary, the 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 Google uh, Hub, um, uh, Google Home, uh, have been used in the kitchen. And I just find that fascinating that that device, with no marketing, no prompting, no public discourse, no nothing gravitated in this huge way to the kitchen and it just it just strikes me as very it is fascinating that the thought that you know the car is one example all these different examples of human life different things we do with voice including a lot of multimodal implementations will gravitate toward one use case uh, or uh, another and um, I, I would love to get your thoughts on what you think we're going to see. So right now we're going through sort of a renaissance uh, or really a renaissance probably isn't right for the emergence of multimodal uh, thanks to the Echo Show finding its home in the kitchen and a number of other things. What are we going to see uh, in your uh, opinion and your perspective as multimodal becomes more, you know, voice with screens, voice and becomes more of a thing um, than it used to be? Uh, great question. You know, uh, the very first Echo device we had uh, in 2014 went into the kitchen. It was a natural location for this device, in my view. And so I did a lot of sociology and anthropological sort of studies about the home kitchen. It really drove me. I mean, I've always been fascinated by this, and I've always done these types of studies in, in my research, but it really drove me to understand I studied builders, I studied uh, architectural plans, I studied new communities, I talked to some of the largest home builders in the country about the trends of the kitchen or the great room, uh, the rise of the great room. Uh, the great room is, those that don't have it or know it, is a kitchen which merges into sort of a dining room, family room huge it usually runs the entire downstairs of a home in some of the smaller homes or at least one half of a of a larger home and we're fortunate to have a great room my family all four of us live in the great room of our home and the kitchen is on one end of it and the tv is on the other end and fireplace and all that and it is a beautiful communal space i said to myself what is this device going to do? And of course, my two sons got into it faster than anybody. Even though they were familiar with voice from me messing around with things, they just dove in. And the very first thing that happened was they started talking to the system uh, about homework, about questions that they thought would be tricky, uh, you know, hard questions, long number of mathematics. My youngest son 
<laughs> I cracked up. He uh, he did a number that I think was forty digits by another number by forty digits added up, which is just stuff that kids do. And uh, you know, and it got results, and it, it it took their time. As people, especially now, are rediscovering their home and primarily their kitchen. I would say that if I were to have access to a heat map of where most people are co- coalescing, it is the uh, the great room or whatever serves as that, the kitchen area of their home where most people are spending most of their time right now. And so I, you know, I've always had the thesis of voice commerce and I thought it brilliant that Jeff Bezos either accidentally rolled into this idea or purposely rolled in the idea that the shortest distance between a purchase is the kitchen to the voice first device, right? So if the device is already in the kitchen, purchasing items that are generally in the kitchen, which is by the way uh, of your, this, you know, disposable income, uh, the kitchen is one of the highest after rent and car and utilities, uh, it, it was a brilliant thing. So voice commerce, I knew, was going to explode. And even though back then everybody thought it was crazy, now they're saying, oh, it makes sense, a little bit more. But now you add a video screen. And a video screen is serving two purposes. It's bidirectional. One is it's displaying information, short-form information, information that can be seen at a distance. It's very important and I still deal with this with a lot of people developing for multimodal. It's very important to understand to use the Steve Jobs slide uh, advice. And that is never put one piece of information, usually one sentence on a screen at a time. Right. And so assume that the multimodal screen is only going to give one concept and one idea, and you need to find a way that it not only enhances what's being said. And this is, this is something that I know is going to flip a lot of people who are designing out. My research shows that you put the limited amount of information on the screen and put the ver- veracity in the explanation with, a, uh, with permission. So what I'm basically saying is, Yes, you can put the entire recipe on the screen if the screen is going to be used as a recipe system, perhaps. But in reality, if you really want to make a great recipe application in this new multimodal environment, understand the utility of the system is not staring at the screen. It's adequately giving out the directions in a format that's useful for somebody who's actually preparing a meal at that moment. None of the uh, recipe applications, I'm giving away an idea, which I think is really, really valuable. None of the current recipe applications are looking at the sociology and anthropology and the psychology of the person that's actually using it at that moment. So in my tests, you know, I created a few of these recipe apps where it's actually the person doing the recipe at that moment with the time that it generally will take to get the job done. It's very important. And in between those moments, there are connections. There are like, you know, there might even be history of the lima bean, right? As somebody has to move something around, you kind of average these things out. And all of a sudden it becomes an interactive sort of video experience without the video. And then you kind of look at the screen for the cue cards of sort of, let's call it a, a PowerPoint type of presentation, 
on how to make that recipe, all mediated by this new interface we call Voice First. And so we are getting to that point, and the kitchen is the perfect place to start. But my gosh, this will expand everywhere to even the automobile. Getting back to that concept on what's wrong with maps, what's wrong with the guidance systems within cars today, because they are not optimal. They're there. They work and they're and some of them are better than others, but they're not optimal because there's things that these guidance systems can do. I can give you an example and I hope to put out a video soon. I, I wanted to actually give a demonstration uh, I was working on a demonstration. I was going to actually you know, hold this event in my car and show you how I navigate. And I, I, I'll, I'll give you a quick overview. My navigation isn't just a map. It's a historian. It is, it is a travel guide. So when I'm traveling down the road, especially in a new area, I'm finding out what happened in this area. You know, I can, I can go down as deep or as wide as I want. But in this case, Alfred, uh, that particular persona, intelligence amplifier, gets deeper into history and less into recent factualities. Uh, uh, there are others that get into factualities. But that persona will say, you know, if I was back east, you know, there was a civil war battle that took place here. And, uh, you know, general whatever, something happened here. And George Washington spent 25 days in this area. I mean, these different sort of what, what sounds arcane creates a richness of life, Bradley, that is just phenomenal. Now imagine a car company. I hope they're listening. A car company designs a persona for a car based upon the type of person driving it, where they get inside of that car and it's a learning device. It's an entertainment device, not to idly pass your time, but perhaps to say, Bradley, I can't believe I was living in this place and I never knew this happened here or that happened here. Or I had no idea at this corner, 39 people died over the last 45 years. I think I might be a little safer on this corner. You know, so now you see I'm shifting to different sort of more current factual pieces of information. Imagine if you're driving down the road, Bradley, and, and you have safety information. There are places that I've discovered statistically that you better lower your speed down by at least 25% because statistically you're going to be less likely to get in an accident. Imagine if you're told that. Now we can fantasize about the self-driving car. We can fantasize about the robot coming in and washing the dishes because both are about equal. We're not going to see the world that most people think is coming probably for a long time. Freeways, it's a different thing. You could probably take your hands off the wheel and that's already been done. But the other types of things, there are difficult limitations to the current uh, paradigms that are being used. And I, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade. It's just it's it's not it's not worthy of the people that really want to build things to hold off that sort of science fantasy, it's not even science fiction sort of world. I, I you know you know me. I, I I might talk about some bold things in the future, but I I cut my line into science fantasy because there's way too many things we can get done right now, rather than trying to predict something that's thirty five to fifty years off. So we're in the automobile, and now we can start doing other things. For example, 
in every single modern automobile, Bradley, is an OBD2 code device. And sounds really interesting. So I hacked my OBD2 device back in the 90s, my first car. And I said, this is a rich source of information. Why isn't it being told to me? All sorts of diagnostics from that automobile comes out of these devices. And the only time it's ever read is by a mechanic, usually at the dealership, telling you, oh, well, you, you know, you've been putting bad gas in the car or, you, you know, you've needed, a, uh, you've needed a, to get your spark plugs changed, you know, whatever. This stuff is pertinent information. So you're driving down the road. And beyond the kit demonstration we just saw, my car, for example, will tell me that my fuel air ratio is extremely low. All right, I'm a nerd, so I get that data. What does that really mean? It means the gasoline that I just bought stinks. It's watered down and it's not performing well. And so what my system does is it makes note of that, uh, of that gas station and to make sure we don't go back to that gas station or maybe I'll get a trend line. And so every time I go and I fill up for the last five years, I know GPS where I filled up my gas, what the performance was in that car, how many miles per gallon, what type of scenarios. Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of jumping around here. Let's get back to, to talking to your car. When your car is intelligent enough to know all of its telemetry systems are available for a conversation and not just a, a dumb indicator light or car service soon or, you know, I'm running a little rough, take me to the dealer. I'm talking about really deep conversations if you want to with your car. Uh, you can now start talking to other things. Um, you shouldn't have to ask, ask your automobile to set the air conditioner. All right. Now I'm a voice first guy, but, but you shouldn't need to really tell it. Your system should know it. And why? Because the world, and this is not a sci-fi world, the world we're building now, especially post 2020 pandemic, you're going to have human telemetry. Hopefully it's private. Hopefully it never goes to the cloud. That's going to tell you your temperature. Right now, I have devices that can tell you 35 different telemetry points on your body. So you're not going to tell your car to turn on the air conditioner. It's going to know your skin temperature. It's going to know your core temperature, and hopefully you're not accelerating uh, your temperature. And, of course, there in and of itself, you can go to medical. I hope that's another conference. But we can start talking about preemptive medical things. Imagine if everybody had a temperature sensor on them now, not controlled by a central authority, not, not out in the public, but just you. You would know up to 30, maybe 48 hours earlier that you have been in contact with a bacterial or viral infection before it really shows up as a temperature. There, there is a variability that takes place in a human body. Uh, there's the temperature variability. There's a heart rate variability. There is a respiratory var variability. When we have a trend line, we can understand these variabilities. So jumping into the you know, voice of, of medicine, <laughs> you know, uh, coming into voice of car, voice of car will know that you come in to that automobile and you're sweaty. You just worked out. So there's no conversation. So I'm not an advocate of creating conversations that don't need to take place. I'm an advocate of intelligence and amplified intelligence and voice when appropriate. Um, interacting with these entertainment systems. Now, again, in a monolithic way, we just think, okay, self-driving car, we're just going to kick back and watch movies. Perhaps. I, I, I don't think 
that that should ever be a goal for anybody. I think that you should, when you're in a motor vehicle, you should always have some form of attention on the road. And I think that is probably not going to change pretty much forever. There's going to be somebody who's going to take responsibility over that vehicle. I think legally, morally, and ethically, that's going to happen, no matter how good our technology is. So you're never going to be 100% attention off the wheel. But eating a French, eating French fries, drinking uh, Starbucks, putting on lipstick, I don't do that very often anymore. Now, uh, you know, all these different things that you would normally do in a car driving down the freeway of Southern California – that's taking about 30% to maybe 80% of your attention off the wheel anyway. Uh, in, in some states, that is way beyond inebriation of driving under the influence. So that's already been happening. It's been happening for decades. And it may be some of the reasons for accidents. may not be. And now that gets me into insurance. Um, insurances are, uh, insurance companies are already plugging into the OBD2 uh, device and they are utilizing that private and personal information to in real time grant you uh, perhaps a lower form of insurance. Um, I'm an advocate of using data that we generate for our own self-empowerment, for our own amplification. And if that data is shared with insurance companies, you should be able to look at that same data and interact with it. What am I doing in that car? What are these things that I should be doing better? So my oldest son is, I, I didn't, you didn't want me to talk about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Oldest son is learning to drive. And I built a, an interface that is allowing the car to help him become a better driver. How to make turns better. Why are we not doing that? Why has not a single one of these automobile companies gone into their wheelhouse, ironically, and said, you know what? We can make cars that help people drive better. And we can use voice-first interfaces and devices to make that come about. Now, I'm not guessing at this, Bradley. Now, they can go and get a lot of engineers say, Brian just gave us a good idea. Fine. I'm already doing this stuff. And a lot of it's not very obvious, and some of it is. I'll give you the obvious stuff. The obvious stuff is you put a novice or maybe an impaired person behind the wheel. And I don't mean alcoholic impaired, but impaired in some way that maybe they're not in the best state of mind driving, right? Let's just say I'm under emotional distress. I was on the freeway the other day and I saw this woman crying with three kids in the back of the car and just crying and her eyes were red and she was going. And I, and I said, I, I rolled down when I go, please pull over, please pull over. You're having a, an emotional crisis. And, you know, we're practicing social distance. I said, whatever is going on, it doesn't matter because your safety of you driving down the freeway right now is more important. And she snapped out of it. Now, I'm not telling you the story for any other reason that imagine if you had an intelligence amplifier that recognized the fact that you are impaired driving and the car isn't reporting you to the police station in some dystopian nightmare. The car is doing what it should be doing is reporting back to you that you're impaired in your driving. And you're not making your lane changes efficiently and effectively. Now, I'm not talking, please, you know, people out there are going to find humor in this, a nag. I'm not talking about let uh, Mercedes-Benz build a nag in your car. I'm talking about things that fortify you and make you a better person and you can learn better driving 
all of us can learn better driving and we all get impaired at times. We all, our attention unfortunately goes off to a text message or fiddling with the, you know, the satellite radio or Spotify or something along those time, along those lines. Uh, gaze detection devices built into cars should be there to empower human beings, not to get somebody arrested. Right. So why am I saying this? Is that with all new technologies, Bradley, they generally come from the top down in most people's minds because they don't see how all technologies come from the bottom up. I've been posting a series of videos and films that I've digitalized. Some of them were thrown away in dumpsters of, of the history of technology. And the one common element of every single innovation is it does not come from top down. It originally comes from the bottom up. Somebody in a garage, somebody comes up with an idea and they build it. And sometimes they get the benefit of building that system uh, as being recognized as the inventor and other times you're forgotten about. But you're now in this automobile of the future, quote, which could happen today. There's no new technology that needs to be invented today, just the will to do it that instructs you. And like my son, he's in a car, this device I built, it helps him stay in the lanes using existing technologies within the car he's driving. I'm using their sensors. These cars have sensors. Do you and I have access to those sensors? No. I, there's, there's good reasons why, because you don't want somebody to hack them but you can create a definitive interface that allows you to see what the car sees without injuring or injecting a problem into that car. So I had to hack into the sensors of my car and allow my intelligence amplifier to interact with it. I don't put anything into the system. I only take raw data out and it tells my son, you know, you're in the center of the, you're in the center of the traffic lane. Um, now is the time to put on the blinker. Hold it. Put on the blinker. Hold it. We have map systems in cars, but there is still not any notification when it's time to put a blinker on. Do you see how simple some of these things are? I just said this, right? There are people that have been working in this industry for decades. I just gave an idea, which I think is worth, it's very valuable. It seems really simple, right? But they haven't done it. And they haven't done it because nobody's thought of it because it's always top-down thinking. It's not bottom-up. And so now you have the blinker notification. Well, what's the best way to do this? Well, if my map knows I need to take that turn, why don't I put that blinker on automatically and say, it's time for you to take the turn? And again, it sounds like a nag until you live in this experience and you realize your car can actually become a modern transportation system. And guess what? If you've ever been in a fighter jet, and I have, this is exactly what goes on in military fighter jets. You and, and modern aircraft, uh, modern uh, jet aircraft pilots. I'm not putting, these pilots are amazing, amazing individuals and amazing experts, but they are notified by the telemetry systems within those cockpits to tell them what to do. And a lot of it is safety reasons. Why aren't we doing it in cars? And why can't we have a conversation? So a lot of times my mapping system that I use will tell me what the average, uh, what the average delays are like and where there are traffic clusters. And it will ask me about rerouting. And I will sometimes say, give me a, 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 an interesting reroute. 
and uh, uh, Albert will come. Uh, 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 Alfred, Alfred will come back with a um, with a, something kind of funny and say, "I'm going to take you through a neighborhood you've never been before." And uh, and I go, "What are you going to show me?" He goes, "I'm going to show you the ex- most expensive house in this neighborhood." Now that's not a thing that he does a lot, but I've built randomness, right? So I, I look at different things. So what did I do? I took myself a little tour. So instead of being stressed that I have traffic, he knows exactly how long I, I have to get to my meeting and is calculated out that I have time to take this detour. Now, what about food? I'm driving along and I'm hungry. Alfred knows what my cuisine choices have been over the last 10 years. And say, Brian, we're passing by a brand new restaurant. It's about 1.6 miles and you have enough time to sit down, have a reasonably good lunch and get back on the road. This is what I'm talking about, Bradley. I'm not talking about this Q&A where your question, give me the local restaurant. This is beautiful, by the way. I'm not putting it down. Give me the most local restaurant uh, within two miles that serves this. That's great. But this is why some people find what we talk about kind of crazy. Because they look at it and say, you know what? I like some of this. And, it, it, you know, it might make some sense sometimes. But it's a whole lot of work for me. And, and, and you know, you can laugh at those people and say, well, God, they must be really lazy. They can't even have a question like this. But imagine if you are having conversations and not questions, where these systems break down, Bradley, is when you have to have a question, answer, question, answer, follow-up question, follow-up answer. Did I do that well? Say yes or no. You know, all these types of things where we can do what we normally do when we're driving with somebody we love, somebody we care about. We have these conversations. We have these interactions. We're not going to fall in love with our assistants. They're a reflection of us. And yeah, in some ways, we should love ourselves first, not in an egotistical way. But, you know, you're going to see more of that in the future. And that's my vision of the automobile. The automobile becomes a learning environment, a teaching environment. And I, I've not even scratched the surface of what we can do inside of an automobile. But those are some of the things I'd like to see. I'd love to help build them. I'm doing them independently, but, you know, certainly I'd love to see larger companies. And if I can say one more thing, if I was an, if I was a car brand and I have not established a universal voice and persona for my brand today, I'm already three years too late and I better hop to it. There's nothing wrong with using the voice assistant of Google uh, Amazon, Apple. But if you advocate that real estate to, to become dumb pipes for another voice assistant, you've advocated your future. Now, what I use is I believe this idea that a car brand should create the voice of the car brand, the persona of the car brand, the persona of that particular model of car. So when you hear that voice, you know it's Mercedes-Benz. Clearly, there is no equivocation. It is a true personality. It's not a generic personality that a committee made so as we don't hurt anybody's feelings. It is a true personality that it reflects the logo and the brand. You must be bold. You must be able to do that.
number one. Number two, if you want to invite Siri and uh, Amazon, everybody else into the car, pipe them in, but don't give them 100% control of the environment. This is something that is absolute insanity to me. They should not take over the environment. They should be an invited guest. And you can communicate with those systems, absolutely. You can pipeline into those systems and you can interact and interplay between the voice of the car and the voice of the home assistant. And if you're really smart, you'll want your car assistant to come with you when you go into the restaurant or maybe even when you go home. And definitely when you go to work, you want to be able to talk to that car. There are things that you want it to do. Is somebody, is somebody breaking into my car? Well, there's sensors on it. Tesla has this, but they've never, they've never connected all these things. Tesla is the closest that could do it, but they're actually one of the last companies to actually do something like this. That you're in constant contact with your automobile, similar to what Kit is, but, but more rich than that. So anyway, I'm sorry I went off on this tangent. No, I just believe yeah, that, so deeply in this. Yeah, uh, we all do. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was fantastic. And, um, you know, Brian, as usual, you give us a lot to think about. Um, it was sort of interesting not having your video. It sort of had this, this <laughs> radio what? aspect to it. Uh, that, it's uh, voice was, first. Yeah, cal- calming um, and just so where we could focus on the words. Brian, thank you for being part of the Voice of the Car Summit with us. Thank you thank so you much, taking, Bradley. Yeah, thank you for taking uh, this time. You're so generous with your time sharing it, uh, sharing your expertise, your experience with, with all of us. It's appreciated. Applause. Thank you. Applause. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll, we'll round some links up. Uh, I'll talk to you about that uh, next day or two. We'll get some links together uh, and uh, send those out when we send out that whatever it is you feel like sharing. You know, I know your, your Quora is public, but uh, whatever you feel like sharing, we'll include that uh, when we send out the audio and video. Um, and I'd uh, love to Bradley, Bradley, I got, yeah. I got to say this. I, I got to give you so much gratitude for you doing this for you, for, for you not, you know, just not having a, a conference. I think this conference actually in some ways has, has worked better than anybody could have possibly have imagined. And I think you lifting people up being positive and offering everybody a, a stage like this is, is absolute brilliance. And, and I think it will have a, a place in the future. I think, I think as we iron it out, we might have so many uses of not to Zoom, but other ways of meeting in, in this sort of format. So I honor you, Bradley, and I thank you for all that you're doing. 